The following has been recorded at Cairn University. Any reproduction of this recording without the express permission of the university is prohibited. We're going to be looking at Galatians chapter 1. So if you've got your Bible, you can uh, turn to the first chapter. And while you're doing that, I want to tell you a little bit about me. Um, I am not one for roller coasters or any other kind of nausea-inducing ride. So if we are ever at the same amusement park and you are in search of me, you can look at one to three places. Uh, Bumper cars, food stands, and uh, those carnival games where after spending a whole lot of money, you can get an oversized stuffed animal that you wouldn't have bought otherwise. And, and there is one of those games that has fascinated me ever since I came across it uh, many years ago. And some of you have uh, heard me talk about this game. It's called Cover the Spot. And um, I've got a picture of it, I think. And um, that's it. And here's how you play it. You have to put your elbow on the counter. And you're given these five metallic discs. And the goal is to, from the height of your elbow to the counter, to drop the five discs one after another, such that you cover all of the red. You don't want any red showing. Because if it is, you lost. That's what you want to do. But of course, that's what you can't do. And every time the person behind the counter does it, he or she makes it look just so easy. They just go one, two, three, four, five, cover all the red. You do it somewhere, there's red showing through. I have no idea how to do it. I have stopped playing it. There are, though, YouTube videos now, because when I played it years ago, YouTube wasn't a thing. But there are YouTube videos now that explain it. I don't have the time for it. Um, but I do think about that game often when I think about theology. Not because there's a trick, not because there's a secret, but um, because whenever we're asking the question, what does the Bible have to say about X? where X is a particular subject. Our goal should be to locate and synthesize all of the biblical material that is either directly or indirectly related to whatever it is that we are seeking to find information about. And when we do that, we're doing what is called systematic theology. Our aim is, so to speak, to cover all of the red to make sure that we're not uh, neglecting or overlooking anything that God has revealed about the topic that we're inquiring about. Take the question, why did Jesus die? How would you answer that question? If we were to go around the room and respond to that question, um, we would get a number of answers. But the question itself is, is asking, what was the purpose? What was the intent of Jesus dying on the cross and his rising from the dead? What goal did he, his Father, and the Holy Spirit have in mind? What was the Godhead seeking to accomplish in the death of Jesus? 
And as I said, if we were to pass a mic and answer that question, we would get numerous answers. Some of them that we might get are, Jesus died to demonstrate God's righteousness. Jesus died to glorify his Father. Jesus died so that those who believe in him could be forgiven of their sins and have eternal life. All of those are true. But no one of them would capture all that the Bible has to say about why it is that Jesus died. Each of them is but a window, a facet of the big picture. That means that if we were to satisfy ourselves only with one of them, we would be um, neglecting other truths. And consequently, our Christian lives and our worship of God would be that much diminished. Now, I can't cover all that the Bible has to say about the purpose of Jesus' death this morning, but I do want to look at two answers to that question that the Apostle Paul gives in his greeting to the Galatian Christians in his letter to them in chapter 1, verses 1 through 5, and I'll ask you to follow along with me as I read. Paul, an apostle, not from men nor through man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him from the dead and all the brothers who are with me. To the churches of Galatia, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ who gave himself for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age according to the will of our God and Father to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Now, Paul wrote this letter, as many of you know, to remind these Christians why Jesus died, because they were in danger of drifting from the gospel. The drifting from the gospel of grace because of the influence of certain teachers who were insisting that obedience to the law of Moses, particularly the command to be circumcised, was necessary to make one right with God, as well as to promote holy living. And the two reasons that Paul gives for Jesus' death that we're going to look at correspond to those two points. Regardless of how long you have been a Christian, if you are a professing Christian, I urge you to pay attention. Just like the Galatians, we have a tendency to stray from a confidence in the gospel and to gravitate to alternative and therefore faulty foundations on which to build our confidence before God. So each of us stands in continual need of being reminded why it is that Jesus died and rose again. This isn't truth that you graduate from to move on to bigger and better things. It's truth that God intends to shape your life. And so we need to keep returning to it. No matter how old we are, no matter how long we have been a Christian, we will never outgrow the necessity of being reminded of the truth of the pure gospel. John Calvin, the 16th century reformer, noted correctly, the best remedy for purifying our minds from any kind of errors or superstitions is to keep in remembrance our relation to Christ and the benefits which he has conferred upon us. 
And that's what we're going to do this morning. So both answers to the question, why did Jesus die, are found in verse 4. And the first is this. Jesus died to remove our condemnation. Our justification, as we will see. Note what Paul says, that Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins. Many years ago, one early Sunday morning, I was readying for church, and I turned on the TV and quickly flipped through the channel so that I could find something to watch while I ironed my shirt. And I stopped on a channel on which appeared Dr. Robert Schuller and his hour of power from the famed Crystal Cathedral. Now, most of you have no idea who the late Dr. Schuller was. Um, let's just say this. He was a well-known author and TV preacher who focused not on sin and grace, but on positive thinking and self-esteem. He was the fill-in-the-blank of the 70s and the 80s. I'm sure you can think of some people to put in there. In fact, one of his best-selling books was titled Self-Esteem, The New Reformation. And in it, he ridiculed classical Christian theology for insisting that theology be God-centered rather than man-centered. And he defined sin as, quote, any act or thought that robs myself or another human being of his or her self-esteem. Well, because I was familiar with Dr. Schuler's teaching, my interest was piqued when the song leader announced that the congregation should stand because they were about to sing a hymn, a hymn by the title, Lift High the Cross. Could this be, I wondered? Was this a sign, perhaps, that um, Robert Schuller's congregation was going to sing a song extolling the cross of Jesus Christ? I stood there in anticipation, hoping that this was a sign of movement towards the gospel. The instruments began to play, then the first verse appeared on the screen. And these were the words. Lift high the cross above the crowded earth that men and women everywhere might know their own self-worth. Needless to say, my hopes were dashed. <laughs> I returned to my ironing, grieved, contrary to those misguided lyrics. The cross of Christ is not principally an affirmation of our worth, but a display of the gravity of our sin and the love of God. In his commentary on Galatians, Martin Luther had this to say about the words of verse 4. This sentence also defines our sins as great, so great, in fact, that the whole world could not make amends for a single sin. The greatness of the ransom 
Christ, the Son of God, indicates this. The vicious character of sin is brought out by the words, who gave himself for our sins. So vicious is sin that only the sacrifice of Christ could atone for sin. The folly of the Galatians, and ours at times, is to think that crimes committed against an infinitely holy God could somehow be compensated for by acts of partial obedience. The attempt to be counted righteous by God on the basis of our own work is striving for what cannot be attained. The law of God is a mirror that reveals the filth of our sin. It is not a washcloth that can remove it. As Paul says later in the same letter, I do not nullify the grace of God, for if righteousness comes through the law, then Christ died needlessly. When we trivialize the holiness of God, we inevitably trivialize the gravity of sin. And where sin is trivialized, so too will be grace and our dire need of it. So much is crammed into those words, who gave himself for our sins. I just want to point out three things briefly. First, Jesus' death was voluntary. He gave himself. No doubt you are familiar with that famous verse, John 3:16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. And in response to the thought of God the Father giving his son to bear the sins of the world and to experience the punishment due us, some object, what kind of tyrannical God would give his innocent son son over to experience a torturous death and bear punishment he didn't deserve so others could go free? Some, professing to be Christians, have even gone so far as to say that that classic understanding of the cross is tantamount to cosmic child abuse. Yes, God the Father gave his son, but God the Son gave himself. Jesus was not the helpless victim of either deity or humanity. There was no conflict or discord within the Godhead. The plan, execution, and application of redemption are the result of perfect triune harmony. Jesus laid his life down willingly so that with Paul, everyone who trusts in him can say, the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Secondly, Jesus' death was substitutionary. He gave himself for our sins. He bore the condemnation we deserve. And when we turn in him to repentance and trust, his perfect record of obedience is credited to us. Think on that. Never allow your familiarity with that truth to issue forth in an inward yawn. Just as the Father treated the Son according to my sins, so too he promises me that he will treat me according to his Son's righteousness. Christ has completely absorbed our condemnation. 
There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. This is the great doctrine of justification by grace through faith. And outside of biblical authors, probably no theologian in the history of the church is more associated with the doctrine of justification than Martin Luther, from whom I've already quoted. But I want you to listen to the practical counsel he gives concerning the application of the words who gave himself for our sins. And someone right now needs these words. Hear them, heed them, trust them. We are not to look upon our sins as insignificant trifles, Luther wrote. On the other hand, we are not to regard them as so terrible that we must despair. Learn to believe that Christ was given, not for picayune and imaginary transgressions, but for mountainous sins, not for one or two, but for all, not for sins that can be discarded, but for sins that are stubbornly ingrained. Practice this knowledge and fortify yourself against despair. Say with confidence, Christ, the Son of God, was given not for the righteous, but for sinners. If I had no sin, I should not need Christ. Thirdly, Jesus' death was satisfactory. And most of the times when we hear satisfactory, we think of that kind of lackluster, and that's not how I mean it. You get to pass-fail thing back, someone writes an S on the top for satisfactory, you don't do cartwheels. That's not what, I, that's not what I'm talking about. What I mean here is what the Bible refers to when it talks about propitiation. Christ giving himself as a sacrifice on behalf of sinners completely satisfied God's justice for all who believe. How could it be otherwise? Since according to verse 4, Christ giving himself for our sins was according to the will of our God and Father. And Paul elsewhere joins Christ's giving of himself for our sins and the Father's satisfaction with his offering in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 2, where he says that, Christ loved us and gave himself, again, up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. Using that imagery of priestly service, it's as though God inhales and says, I am satisfied. This is a beautiful fragrance to me. No one who genuinely trusts Christ's death as the full and final payment for his or her sins ever needs to worry that God will find it wanting. That's good news. As wonderful as the news of justification is, though, that's not the only reason Jesus died. In fact, Paul says Jesus gave himself for our sins in order to accomplish another goal, and that's the second point. Jesus died to rescue us from our captivity to the present age. Look again at verse 4. It says that Christ gave himself for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age. The cross, therefore, was a divine means of rescue. But what does it mean to deliver us from this present evil age? Because aren't we in it? To understand what Paul has in mind, we need to understand that the Bible frequently divides human history into two periods the present age and the age to come. 
We see this in a number of places in Jesus' own teaching in warning of the grave consequences of blaspheming the Holy Spirit in Matthew 12, 32. He says, but whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven either in this age or in the age to come. In Mark's gospel, Jesus gives these words of assurance to his disciples. Truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or lands for my sake and for the gospel who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time, houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions and in the age to come, eternal life. And again in Luke chapter 20, Jesus says, the sons of this age marry and are given in marriage, but those who are considered worthy to attain to that age and to the resurrection from the dead, neither marry nor are given in marriage, for they cannot die anymore, because they are equal to angels and are sons of God being sons of the resurrection. Paul describes the captivity from which we needed to be rescued in Ephesians chapter two, one through three. He says, you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, literally, according to the age of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. Among them, we too all formerly lived in the lusts of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. I have found an explanation by the theologian George Eldon Ladd very helpful in understanding what is meant by this present age, age to come distinction. Uh, Ladd wrote this, this age is the period of Satan's activity, of human rebellion, of sin and death. The age to come will be the age of eternal life and righteousness when Satan is destroyed and evil swept from the earth. In brief, the redemptive realities are the blessings which belong to the age to come. But in Christ, they have been given to believers who still live in this age. Christians live in two ages. They enjoy the powers of the age to come while living in the end of this age. Now, in most cases of rescue that we hear about, like on the news, the people who were rescued were aware of the fact that they were in peril. But that's not the case for us apart from God's opening our eyes to our true condition. We boast of our freedom when in actuality we are in bondage to our own lusts and cravings. We were captives of this present evil age. We were like arsonists trapped in buildings that we had set ablaze and loving the heat but God in his mercy and in his powerful redeeming love rescued us from the present evil age by bringing us a foretaste of the age to come. In his book, Taking the Word to Heart, Self and Others in an Age of Therapies, Robert C. Roberts writes this, sin is by definition a condition from which one must be rescued by God. 
In the New Testament, he notes, sin is not just a set of misdeeds, but a perverse state of the person, and thus a psychological state, a state of the soul. Insofar as Christianity is a word about the overcoming of sin, a word that is at the same time instrumental in the overcoming of it, it is in the most literal sense of the word, a psychotherapy, a cure for sick souls. Through the cross of Christ, the age to come characterized by resurrection, restoration, and righteousness has penetrated this present evil age to rescue sinners from its power. Paul says essentially the same thing using the language of creation. Later in Galatians chapter 6, verses 14 and 15, he says, But may it never be that I would boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom the world has been crucified to me and I to the world, for neither is circumcision anything nor uncircumcision, but a new creation. And that should remind you of those well-known words from 2 Corinthians 5, 17, if anyone be in Christ, he is a new creature. The old things have passed away. Behold, new things have come. Oh, Christian, do not settle for tweetable theology. Do not settle for bumper sticker theology. That was what I originally said, but then I said, they don't really know much about bumper stickers. I have to say, <laughs> but, but there, was, there, was a, there was a bumper sticker many years ago, maybe some of you have seen it, um, and it said this, Christians aren't perfect, just forgiven. And I see that and I think about it and I say, yeah, but it's partially true. I'm not arguing for perfectionism. My wife would see to that. But what I do want to say is this. Christians are much more than just forgiven. We are far more than just forgiven. I'm in the midst of reading a book called um, On the Road with St. Augustine by a Christian philosopher named James K.A. Smith. And a few days ago, I came across these lines that capture well the point that I'm trying to make here. Listen to what he wrote. Grace isn't just forgiveness, a covering, an acquittal. It is an infusion, a transplant, a resurrection, a revolution of the will and wants. It's the hand of a higher power that made you and loves you reaching into your soul with the gift of a new will. Grace is freedom. Yes, Jesus died for my pardon and my acceptance by a holy God. Praise God. I don't want in any way to diminish the, the richness of that. But if your understanding of the cross, if your understanding of why Jesus died never progresses beyond that glorious truth, 
you're putting yourself in danger of short-circuiting your striving for holiness. In fact, the worst case scenario is that I can abuse the truth of my justification in an attempt to excuse or to rationalize not striving against sin in my life. I can get into the habit of indulging unrighteousness and shrugging it off with a casual attitude, thinking, hey, I'm forgiven. It's covered. And if that's my attitude, I'd say that there's good cause for me to at least be willing to consider whether my faith is real. Listen to what uh, pastor and hymn writer John Newton wrote about this. He said, whoever is possessed of true faith will not confine his inquiries to the single point of his acceptance with God. In other words, what Newton is saying is, true faith is not just going to focus on justification at the exclusion of all else. It's not going to restrict its inquiries into the cross as a means of acceptance with God. Or be satisfied with the distant hope of heaven hereafter. He will be likewise eager to concern himself with how he may glorify God in the world and enjoy such foretastes of heaven as are attainable while he is yet upon earth. The cross accomplished more than just covering our sins. It rescued us from the dominion of sin and Satan so we can do battle with sin in our hearts with confidence, an expectancy that's significant, though not perfect, but significant change and transformation is possible because that is one of the reasons why Jesus died and rose again. Pray with me, will you? Our Father, as we celebrate Advent, as we remember the coming of Christ into the world, it is with the remembrance that as the angel announced to Joseph, you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. And that is such a multifaceted redemption. Lord, keep us from focusing only on one aspect of, of his glorious death and resurrection. May we mine the riches of your word for the entirety of our lives so that we might know the hope to which we have been called, what it was that was your intent in delivering us, that we would not settle for anything less than your purposes. And Lord, we pray that as we go into this day, it would be um, reminded by your spirit of Jesus in all of his beauty, all of his perfection, his offering of himself for our justification and our deliverance. May we walk by the power of your spirit in that reality. May we encourage one another to do likewise. All of this we ask in the name of Jesus, our great high priest, our elder brother, our savior, and our Lord. Amen.